0: Well, we're in First uh, John again this morning as we continue our series. If you're new here, what we do is we take books of the Bible, we work our way through them section by section. Sometimes we take shorter sections, sometimes uh, longer sections. This morning, we're going to be covering verses 7 through 21, again, as part of our series called As Children of God. Have you ever heard the name Francis Schaeffer? Uh, let me show you a picture just so you have an idea of what I'm talking about. Schaeffer is, is some, sometimes criticized for having sad eyes, which you can uh, probably see from that picture. Um, uh, he was a shorter man with kind of a, a higher-pitched voice, um, uh, but, but came to be known as one of the most influential apologists, defenders of the Christian faith, really to ever live, and especially in the 20th century. Uh, Schaeffer was a pastor. He was an author. He was, as I mentioned, an apologist. He was a filmmaker. He was a minister to students, and few people, in the words of a Baptist theologian and uh, seminary president Al Mohler, few people have had a greater impact on the young young generation than Francis Schaefer. But his was not an easy road to ministry. Uh, Schaeffer had dyslexia as a kid, and so had a really difficult time in school. Even though he was very bright, uh, really struggled to get uh, good grades ended up deciding after he went through school, again, made it through school successfully, decided that he would be an engineer. So he went to school to become an engineer. Uh, But during his first year of college, had this kind of crisis where he really was discerning and believed that God had called him into vocational ministry. So he went and told his father, he said, Dad, I believe that God's calling me to be a pastor. And, And Schaefer's dad said, absolutely not. No son of mine will be a minister. So, of course, this was a A very difficult thing. Schaefer thought. Well, do I honor my father, or do I follow what I believe to be God's calling in my life? And so he did what a lot of eager uh, Christians might consider doing. He decided to flip a coin to determine the direction. So he said, "God, if if I'm going to flip a coin, if it's it's heads, then I promise, then then I'll I'll leave uh, engineering school and I'll, I'll go study to be a pastor." So he flipped a coin, and it was heads. He said, well, God, let's make it two out of three. And so uh, he said, God, this time if it's tails, if it's tails, I promise you, I will leave the study of engineering. I'll go study, become a pastor. He flipped a coin, and sure enough, it was tails. But he was still not decided. So he said, God, if you'll just, if you'll just indulge me, if you'll just uh, allow me one more opportunity, this time if it's heads, then I promise. I, I'll follow you, and, and I'll serve you in vocational ministry. So he flipped a coin again. And sure enough, it was heads. Now, this is, not, this is not me advocating this model of decision-making, but for whatever reason, in his providence, God uh, led uh, Francis Schaefer into pastoral ministry that way, he went back and told his father, and uh, his dad slammed the door in his son's face and again said, I'll never accept a son who goes into a pastoral ministry. Now, later, God would soften his heart and, and his dad would actually come alongside and help to pay for some of his son's uh, theological training. But as I mentioned, this is a guy, some of you have read his trilogy, uh, How Then Shall We Live, and, and, and other books by him. In fact, some of you have told me offline that he's been influential in your own life. Now, why would I bring up Francis Schaefer in, in the introduction to uh, a passage of First John? Well, toward the end of his life, after debating the Christian faith many, many times, one-on-one and sometimes uh, to hundreds and, and and sometimes even thousands of people on college campuses, Francis Schaefer would conclude that there's nothing more persuasive, there's no greater apologetic for the Christian faith than love. He would say, Love and the unity that it attests to is the mark that God has given us to wear among those, uh, among unbelievers. So he would say, There's nothing that will persuade a watching world more of the reality of a God and the legitimacy of a Christian faith than the way that we love one another. Well, of course, Francis Schaeffer wasn't the first person to say this. Many had said that before him. And going all the way back to the Apostle John, in this letter that we've been studying, John himself says repeatedly that the way that the world will know that you belong to me, the way that the world will know that you are in fact a Christ follower, is by the way that you love one another. John says that same thing repeatedly. There's a lot of repetition in in this letter, as you probably picked up on, uh, but the most oft-repeated command is the command to love. In fact, in the section we're in this morning, some 15 verses, John will include the word love or some uh, derivation thereof, some form of it, 29 times. Love, loved, beloved, beloved, be love and so on. So this happens 29 times. Uh, there's a reason that the ancient Christian writers called John. Some called him the Apostle of love." Others called him the Doctor of Love." and so he was known for his penchant uh, for talking about love. And Love's actually mentioned so many times in this passage. I'm just going to be candid with you uh, so many times in this, this letter, this letter, that as a preacher, sometimes it's hard to find new ways. To talk about it, I I thought to myself, what am I going to say about love that hasn't already uh, been said? But in this passage, beyond just commanding us to love, which we'll see in just a moment, uh, John relates to us where love is from and what it does. And and really, in this passage, we have twice repeated, verses 8 and 16, uh, one of the most profound, mysterious, amazing, important phrases in the Bible God is love. God is love. And so much of what we'll have to say this morning will be, you might say, a meditation on that particular reality. God is love. We'll see three things this morning. What does it mean to say that God is love? What does God's love do? And in what sense is love incompatible with fear? So let me read, uh, I'm just going to read the entire section and uh, you will see uh, straight away just how many times you hear the word love. So uh, 1 John 4, verses 7 through 21, here reads the word of the Lord. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us Of his spirit, and we have seen and testified that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this is love perfected with us, so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment, because as he is also. Uh, So also we are in the world, as he is, so also we are in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother, whom he has not seen, or who has he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, whoever loves God must also love his brother. So you see what I'm talking about, don't you? All the, love, uh, all the love references. Well, you know, we live in a day and age, I think it's fair to say, when God is, for many people, an afterthought at best. And what I mean by at best is for many people, not only is God not an afterthought, but He really has no impact or influence on their daily lives. And then you go a step further on the spectrum, and there are those uh, for whom God, even the idea of God, is something to be mocked. And of course, the very person of a living God is something to be ridiculed, something uh, to be derided. Uh, in his eye-opening book, God in the Wasteland, theologian David Wells says one of the defining marks of our, life, of our times is that God has become weightless, he says, unimportant. Unimportant. We pushed him to the periphery of our lives and even of our worship. Well says this, God rests upon the world so inconsequentially as not to be noticeable. He is less interesting than television, his commands less authoritative than our appetites for affluence and influence, and his judgments no more awe-inspiring than the evening news. A God with whom we are on such easy terms, who's merely there to satisfy our needs, has no real authority to compel and will soon begin to. To bore us. Now, that was 30 years ago, so or almost, that was 1993, and I think it's fair to say, before social media and, and, and all that, it's fair to say that now I think uh, this, has, this has come to fruition in the sense that for most people, God, again, is unimportant, He is weightless, and He certainly is not awe inspiring. M- many people, I think, are either bored with God or they feel, certainly, zero fear of God, they don't feel the fear of God. And because this is true, whenever we talk about the love of God, because of where we are in our world, in our society, because whenever we talk about the love of God, we feel like we have to, of course, we have to talk about it with a thousand disclaimers. It's what uh, philosophers call death by a thousand qualifications. We say, yes, God is love, but he's also holy. He's also a God of wrath. He's also a God of judgment. He's also a God of justice. We say whenever we talk about the love of God, we have to offer a thousand qualifications. And all of those things that I just mentioned are absolutely true. God is a holy God. He is a God of wrath. He is a God of judgment. He is a God of mercy and so on. But John doesn't feel the the need to blunt the force of this statement, God is love, with all of these disclaimers. He says, God is love. And so because this is where John goes in the passage, I don't want to spend all of our time with a thousand qualifications. I actually want to spend our time looking at what does it mean to say that God is love. And of course, when I say God is love, we talk about God is love. Certainly, I also recognize and I'm eager to to confess all those other things that I just said about God. But what does it mean to say that God is love? Well, the whole idea of love, of course, has been so... Overused and oversaturated and over applied, that it has almost lost all meaning. It's a word that we use to describe the way we feel about just about anything. We'll say, I love whatever it is. Uh, it's a word that we've used so often that uh, one can argue that all meaning has been lost. As many have said, a word that means everything cannot possibly mean anything. But we don't want. I don't think we we don't want to jettison the word altogether. It actually goes to the very uh, essence of the human experience, and, and furthermore, it's a, God, a word that John says God is. So we don't want to say, "Well, we don't have any idea what love is. We shouldn't even begin to try to define love. It's been so overused and overapplied. Let's just ignore it." I don't think that's a healthy approach. Uh, Let me start with, as our first point this morning, what I offered to you as my humble definition of God's love, and I guarantee you can find better ones out there, but, but here it is. To the very nature of His being, God purely and unchangeably delights in what He has covenanted to delight in. Now, I know. Again, it's not the best definition. It's not the best syntactically. It ends with a preposition. I know all that stuff. But, but I think that, that, to me, I think really captures the essence of the love that we see uh, that describes God in the Scriptures. Yeah, is, it, is it more than that? Of course it is. Is it an action? Yes, and so we're going to see that. Is it a commitment? Yes, absolutely. But I think we've tried so hard, and this is what happens anytime you overreact to something strongly, We've tried so hard to remove the emotive aspect of God's love that it's become, you know, purely academic in some sense. It's become toothless. After Janine and I had been uh, talking, as the young kids say, for about a month, I knew that I wanted to marry her. In fact, I knew after our first long, it was probably a two or three hour conversation, I knew after our first conversation, I wanted to marry her. And I didn't tell her that. I thought that would definitely creep her out. But I knew right away, this is the woman that I want to marry. Um, After a month, I was absolutely certain of it. Uh, One evening, we'd probably been seeing each other for maybe four or five months, and I did something that I was not accustomed to doing. Uh, But after we had dinner, I said to her, I think I'm falling in love with you. And then I waited with great anticipation for her response, (laughs) to which she said, love is not something you fall into, it's a commitment you make. I thought, is this really a time for the teaching moment? I mean, is this... I mean I'm mean, i putting my heart out there. But you're going to take me to school on what love is? Um, she would uh, respond that she loved me, which was encouraging. Um, but she was right in the sense that, you know, the essence of love is not something you just kind of fall into and fall out of. It is, at the very heart, it is a covenant. And to use biblical language, God's love is, in fact, a covenant relationship. As I read, He loved us first. He chose he determined to love us when we didn't love Him. But it wasn't simply a business decision. He actually delights in those He loves. Now, you look at there are a couple of Hebrew words, translated love, a couple of new, several New Testament words, and three that you probably know pretty well, translated love. But you go back to really the Old Testament, there's this word, uh, hesed, which is translated. It's, it's a difficult word to translate in English. It's a Hebrew word, hard to translate in English because it captures a lot of different ideas. Um, faithfulness, kindness, mercy, love, uh, loyalty, all of those things. And so the English translators do translate the word in various ways. Sometimes it's covenant faithfulness. Sometimes it's um, a steadfast love. Sometimes it's, it's kindness or loving kindness. Um, but at the heart of it is, is this idea of um, a, a promise-keeping loyalty that is motivated by a deep personal affection. So God doesn't just simply choose people coldly and perfunctorily. He delights in those He chooses. We're going to sing at the end of the service. Uh, Those He saves are His delight. God Himself says in Jeremiah 31 to His covenant people, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And I've read a few commentators on this, but none have even compared... Not surprisingly to Gerhardus Vos, the great uh, 19th century Dutch, Dutch Reformed theologian who writes this. And this is a little long, but it's so good. The divine declaration, I have loved thee with an everlasting love, is by no means from Jeremiah's standpoint the commonplace which our overfamiliarity with that uh, attribute has made it. The prophet means to describe by this term something quite extraordinary, something well-nigh inconceivable, a supreme wonder in the land of wonders. Love to him, this is Jeremiah as the mouthpiece of God, is the highest form of the spiritual embrace of a person by a person. To ascribe it to God in connection with the creature is at the farthest removed from being a figure of speech. He says it means that in the most literal sense, This is hard hard to fathom. In the most literal sense, he concentrates all the light and warmth of his affection, all the prodigious wealth of his resources, his endless capacity of delight upon the heart-to-heart union between the redeemed and himself. Now what a profound notion that God would concentrate his endless capacity of delight on us. His redeemed people. Now, remember what's going on with John's original audience here. These people are—they're are, they're struggling with doubt. First of all, they don't know about the teaching that their friends have embraced, the friends that have left the church. So they're—they're they're worried about that. They don't really know. Have I bought into the right teaching? Am I really abiding with God? And they—they they wonder on some level, how does God feel about me? What is God's disposition to me? And so, what John says to them is he reminds them. More than just they've been chosen by God, which is absolutely true and comforting, but John tells them that God purely and unchangeably delights in them. God actually delights in them. And the same is true for everyone who is in Christ. If you are in Christ, God not only loved you before you were born, chose you to be in Him before you were made, He also has the most intense affection for you right now at this very moment. At this very moment, God actually delights in you. Yeah, He loves you. He actually likes you. He enjoys you. He takes pleasure in you. In a way that is never at odds with His passion for His own glory, God delights in you, which means that He is deeply concerned as the object of His love about everything that you're going through. Every struggle, every fear, every moment of anxiety or uncertainty or grief or, or sadness or, or self-loathing, whatever you're going through, this God who loves you and delights in you actually cares. And it's not in a passive sort of, I wish I could do something sort of way, but in an I'm with you and I'm in this and I've got you sort of way. Now, what would happen... How would our lives be changed if we actually embrace the reality that in Christ, God really, truly delights in us? I've had so many people over the years, especially those who have been caught in sin or addiction, those who keep falling prey to the same sins, who have said to me, I just, I just can't believe that God actually loves me. I, I just can't accept it. That God loves me. And it's not just people who are caught in sin. I've had people say that to me that some of the, some of the most upstanding Christian people that I know. When we, we become more aware of our own sinfulness and our own brokenness and just how far we've fallen from God's glory, it is a challenge at times. The Puritans would say one of the greatest challenges for us to believe that God actually loves us, that He takes pleasure in us, because we know how unfaithful we are. But again, it goes back to the very nature of God, who John says is love. Yes, God demands perfection for those who would be in His presence, but that takes us to our next point, what it is that God does. Look at verses 7 through 11 again. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. Whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent His only Son into the world, so that we might live through Him. In this is love, not that we've loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God loved so loved us, we ought to love one another. So, you know, we don't talk about propitiation. I bet you can't remember the last time you used that word in a sentence. It's not a word we use in in regular English. But it actually is a very important word, biblically speaking. Propitiation is a word that means, in the English, it means satisfaction. To propitiate is to satisfy. As those who are born in sin, every single one of us, we're born at odds with God, and we demonstrate every day that we are falling short of what God requires of us, that is perfection. We love other things more than we love God. Our hearts, our minds, our our motives are impure. And as those who have rebelled against God, we are deserving of His eternal wrath. Every sin against an eternally holy God deserves eternal wrath. And we've sinned and continue to sin against God in countless ways. I don't know the ways, all of them, but I know that I have sinned against God this morning. In the things that I have treasured, in the way that I have looked at things, in my motives, uh, in my thoughts... We sin against God all the time. Well, out of love, God sent His Son to take upon Himself the wrath that we deserve. Also, out of love, Jesus willingly satisfied the wrath of God against our sin by living a perfect, sinless life and by dying in our place. It wasn't that Jesus simply satisfied the wrath, God's wrath against sin in general. He satisfied God's wrath against us. Jesus' death on the cross turned away the Father's wrath from us as it was poured out on God's Holy Son. Now this is what John says. This is how we know love. This is the supreme definition and perfect example of love. So even though God's love is a delight, even though it is emotive, it is also active and self-giving in order for us to love the way that God loved us, it required action. That, that kind of love that God shows us requires, if we're to live the, love the way God loves, it requires action, service to one another. But it's hard to put the needs of others ahead of our own, isn't it? It's hard to look out for others. It's hard to go without the things that we want and desire so that someone else can have it. How do we get there? How do we love in the way that God demands? Well, What John does as he commands his readers to love one another is he takes them back to the heart of the gospel. You see what he's doing here? He says, love in this way, and then he reminds the readers of how they've been loved. Jesus Christ, sent by God, died for sinners, and John says to them, here's the definition of love, and this is how you've been loved. The more that you focus on that reality, the way that you are loved in Christ, the better able you will be to love. John says in in verse 7, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. In other words, our ability to love other believers is a direct consequence of being born again by God out of His love. So if you're in Christ, think about it this way. If you're in Christ, there was a moment in your life, and and it's okay if you don't, you you may have that that date, scribbled in the inside of your Bible, you may not know the exact time, and that's okay. But, but there was a moment in your life when God drew you to Himself, He made you alive in Christ and enabled you to respond in repentance and faith. It's called the new birth. Jesus talks about being born from above, John 3. So there was a moment in your life, salvation is both an event and a process, there was a moment in your life when God, by His Spirit, brought you to repentance and faith in Him. This is what God does. He takes someone who is spiritually dead, yes, physically alive, but spiritually dead, and He brings them to life in an instant, giving them the ability to repent and believe. And at the same time, at that very moment that God made you alive in Christ, He also equipped you by His Spirit with the ability to love other believers. So here's our second point. By His love, Revealed through the cross work of His Son, God makes us alive in Christ and enables us to love other believers. So if you are in Christ, you have the Spirit-enabled ability to love other believers. You have that ability in Christ. Now, it's impossible to love, John says, unless you've been born of God. Now, it doesn't mean, of course, we would never say, and I'm not saying that if you're not a Christian, you don't really know what love is. You can't love anybody else. Nobody uh, would say that. You probably know, and so do I, unbelievers who are, you know, generally speaking, loving people. But what we're talking about is not just a generic sort of love, but a very specific type of love. We're talking about loving in the way that God has loved us. Now, think about how god has loved us god loved us first verse 19 so he loved us before we loved him he didn't wait for us to make the first move he made the first move in loving us now how can you love how do we love somebody else who has never loved us All right that's that takes something supernatural doesn't it think about how else god loved god loved us when we hated him That's when God loved us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. So God loved us when we were his enemies. How are you at loving your enemies? You're probably better than I am at it. I'm not very good at it. It's hard to love our enemies. That takes actually a supernatural enablement. How else did God love us? God loved us even though we're very different than he. We're infinitely different than God. And yet, we sometimes have a hard time loving people who are different than we are, don't we? People who have different beliefs, convictions, people who look different, sound different, come from different areas of the world, whatever it is. Sometimes it's hard to love people who are different we. And that's how God loved us. God loved us and continues to love us even when we offend Him. And I'm being very transparent with you. If I've been really, really offended by someone, I find it very difficult to love that person. It takes a supernatural enablement. In all of these things, the love that God commands is only possible by virtue of the new birth as we are empowered by the gospel, which is the news of God's love for us. You know, whatever stage of life we're in, we we tend to regard that stage of life as the most hectic and difficult. Um, You know, if you're single and you're really engrossed in your work, it's easy to think, this is really, I'm totally swamped. Or you you get married, you have one child, and you think, I don't know how people do this with multiple children. This is just this is a lot, you know. And you have two or three children, you think, "Oh, that was really easy when we had one child." I remember uh, the stage of life when we had four kids uh, under eight, so eight, six, four, and a newborn. And you know, those were those were difficult days. But you know what happens is when you get past that stage, whatever stage it is, you look back, you think, "Those were really sweet times. Those are really sweet times." And I. I was pastoring a large church, and Janine was a stay-at-home mom, and um, and she just took care of everything. She took. I, I left in the morning. Sometimes I didn't get back till eight or nine, nine at night, and Janine just handled everything. But when I got home, it was like, okay, here, here are these kids. Here are your kids. Deal with them. And uh, and I remember that phase of life, and I love that. I, I love that time. I love particularly, you know, tucking the kids in at night, and. Uh, I would tell them a story, and often, you know, sometimes we would, I'd sing them a song, a song I'd made up or something, and we'd pray together. And, and for the longest time, what I prayed for them was, you know, and I remember very vividly being at the crib side, you know, just a little, little children and, and praying for them, God, help them to love you. But right about that same time when my kids were that age, I was also preaching through the book of Ephesians. And I remember being so struck by Paul's writing, particularly chapters 3 and 4, that actually changed the way that I prayed for my kids. Instead of praying, God, help them to love you, what I started to pray was, God, enable them to see and to know and to experience the depth of your love for them. Now, it's a subtle change, but I think it's important. And if you pray, God, help my kids to, to love you, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think the more that we, whatever age, begin to really comprehend the love that God has for us in Christ, the more that actually it opens up our heart to love Him, and to obey Him, and to worship Him, and to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. It's only as we really understand, this is why Paul would pray for the Ephesians, that my prayer is that God would strengthen you with all ability so that you might know the height and width and depth of God's love for you in Christ. He says, I want you to know how much you're loved. And This is the way, again, that we are able to love those difficult people in our lives, those siblings in Christ, is as we really take in and revel in and grasp just how we've been loved. How do you get yourself to love someone you can't seem to love? Do you just yell at your heart and say, you know, what's wrong with you? You need to love better. Do you beat yourself up over that, you know, perceived inability? Do you promise before God, if you just do these things, do you flip a coin and say, if it's, if it's heads, I'll love, if it's... How do you love someone who's difficult to love? Well, you know, you can make all the commitments in the world, and you can, you know, yell at your heart, so to speak, but the only way to love those who are hard to love is to constantly return in the Spirit to the love that God has for us, the love that we've been loved uh, by God with. Many years ago, I got a call at 5 a.m. one Friday morning, um... And there was a woman on the other line, and I, I could not understand. What she was saying was completely unintelligible to me. She was sobbing so hard. And so I said, well, well please, just oh, slow down, take a breath. I don't understand what you're saying to me. And finally, I was able to She said, will you come over? This is 5 a.m. on Friday. I was asleep when she called. Uh, I know some of you were up at 4 a.m., you know, uh, for work. But I don't get up that early. I was asleep, and, I, and she said, will you please come to our house? My husband and I are here, here sitting, and we need help. And so I said, sure, and so I, I, I got dressed and went over to her house. And I got there, both husband and wife, their, their faces just completely puffy. They've swollen, eyes swollen shut. They've been crying for hours. And what I would later find out as they shared the story is that the wife discovered her husband coming in early that morning. He'd been out all night, had been unfaithful to her, and he'd been with a man. And so, of course, you know, she she is just reeling. No idea. Like, I don't even know what to make of this. I don't even know where to begin. Like, I'm so confused right now. I don't know. You know, first of all, I've been betrayed, sinned against. My husband has been unfaithful to our marriage covenant. But now I don't know if he loves me. I don't know if he's attracted to me. I don't know where to begin. And that began a long journey that was probably 12 to 16 months where you know i tried to help them you know see you know as we met together help them understand really the depth of the gospel and she would come to a place where as she re- began to recognize it was a spirit enabled thing she began to recognize the depth of god's love for her in spite of her own rebellion against god her unfaithfulness to god and she would come to a place where she was actually eager to forgive her repentant and broken husband now they had a long way to go in terms of reconciling and but now, happily married, uh, serving God with their lives, uh, glorifying God. And she would say later on, the only way I was, it was even remotely possible for me, to, for me to begin the process of forgiving and being reconciled to my husband was as I, had to, as I contemplated and rested in and reveled in and understood the love that God had for me in Christ. Well, there's one other powerful result of God's love beyond just, by God's grace, the ability uh, to love others. And by the way, I know, I, mean, I know that some of you have been hurt horribly by other Christians. Some of you have been hurt by people in this church. And, and I want you to know from the Scriptures that if you're a Christian, you have the ability in Christ to love that other person. It's not going to be by your own willpower. It's not going to be as you dig deep or look for some sort of inner strength. It will be only as you depend on Christ in you and only as you are compelled by the love that God has shown you. Now again, there's one other powerful result of God's love. Look at at verses 17 and 18 again. John says, By this is love perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as He is... As he is, so also are we in the world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. For fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. Now, it's love perfected, John says, that casts out all fear. Well, before I answer the question, what is love perfected? We have to ask the question, what is it that brings this type of fear that John is referencing? And the answer is, it is the threat of judgment the threat of judgment. It is the threat of immediate judgment that that brings fears in us now. What will happen? Will I be judged? What will happen if I wear this shirt, if I make that comment, if I say that joke, if my past sin gets discovered? Will I be judged? What will happen if my kids act up, if I'm late on this project, if my idea doesn't work? If I can't lead this team, will I be judged? So we all have to deal deal with this you know this fear of judgment. Will I be judged if I do this or if this happens? But the greatest fear, even though we may not consciously think about it, is the fear of the judgment that awaits at the end of this life. What will ha- this is why people and I've been around a lot of people as they've been dying or about ready to uh, you know, to, to give up their life, to give up their last breath. And, and for the most part, many people are terrified, terrified of dying. The greatest fear is the judgment that awaits us after we die. It's a real terrifying judgment. But John says, for those who have trusted in Christ, we don't, don't need to fear God's judgment. He says in verse 17, love perfected gives us confidence. And in verse 18, perfect love cast out fear. Well, what's John talking about? A perfect love that we have for God? Is John saying when you love God in an absolutely perfect way, you need not fear. That's not what he's saying. Actually, verse 12 helps if you just scan up to verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. When we hear about something being perfected, we tend to think of it as being brought to an absolute flawless condition, right? So if you say, I've perfected this result, you know, this, this recipe, I perfected this recipe, you think, well, I now have, I've, I've perfected the ability to make a perfect whatever it is, cookies or meatloaf or whatever the recipe is. We look at something as being, having been perfected, as something brought to a flawless condition. But that's not. The way the Bible talks about it typically, the the Greek word that John uses here, which is a form of the word telos, which just means complete or finished, um, it doesn't typically mean in the New Testament flawless, although it does occasionally, but it typically means a completed or accomplished work. Think less of a recipe and more of a trip or an assignment. I've, I've got that done. That has been completed. I brought that to telos, to the end. So how does that relate to God's love here? Well, John's not saying when your love for God is perfect, flawless, then you don't have to fear. What he's saying is when God, when God's uh, goal for you, when God has reached His goal for you, the, the immediate goal of enabling you to love one another, and the ultimate goal, of course, of, of bringing you to final perfection, but when God has uh, brought you to a place where you are growing in your love for one another, and the goal there being to love one another sacrificially and so on, then you will no longer fear judgment, but recognize that you are right with God and no longer uh, concerned about His wrath. Let me say it this way as our final point. If we love our brothers and sisters, you know, siblings in Christ, we know that it is because we have been loved and born again by God which frees us from any fear of divine judgment. So if we know that we're right with God, we don't have to worry about what's on the other side of this life. We don't have to worry about what happens when we die. We have no fear of judgment. For those who are in Christ, we know that not only does God love us now, but He will never pour out His wrath on us because He has poured out His wrath fully on Jesus Christ. Well, how do we know that we actually are in Christ? This is what John is getting at. One evidence is the love that we have for one another. A love that will be perfected by God or reach its ultimate goal when we are with Jesus Himself. So what John is saying is, and again, remember the audience here. Conflicted, doubtful, stressed out, persecuted Christians who are wondering, am I right with God? What John says is, one way that you can know is the love that you have for one another. Because as you love one another in this sacrificial way, you are giving evidence that you are actually born again of God, and therefore the objects of God's divine love. So, perhaps a way to end was, will be with a question that I asked myself in this preparation, and that is, what does my pattern of love for my brothers and sisters in Christ say about God's love within me. What does your pattern of love, the way that you love your brothers and sisters in Christ, what does it say about God's love within you? It doesn't mean we have to love each other perfectly. It doesn't mean that we love each other flawlessly. We will never do that as as sin-cursed people on this earth. But what it does mean is that we should be constantly depending on the Spirit, appealing to God for strength, and we should have the ability to actually delight in and to serve well the people that God has put put us together with, our brothers and sisters in Christ. God's perfected love in us is not a reference to a flawless love by any stretch, but it is an active, growing, sacrificial love that is fully dependent on the Father and one that gives evidence that we have been born again. And I pray that that's the love that we have for one another. Let's, let's pray.